Innovation almost always is not successful the first time out. You, you try something and it doesn't work and it takes confidence then to say, well, we haven't failed yet. Let's try something else and then let's try something else and ultimately you become commercially successful. We are very honoured and privileged to host in person here in Dublin, in the iconic studios in Dublin St. Stephen's Green, Rita McGrath. Clayton Christensen was a huge fan of Rita's discovery-driven planning and discovery-driven growth, and therefore it makes sense that we honour Clay by including Rita in this brilliant series to honour the work, life and theories of Clayton Christensen. Before we begin, I want to thank our sponsor, Next Estate, specialists for English-speaking investors for buying, selling and managing property in the Berlin market in Germany. You can find Next Estate at next-estate.com and next-estate.de. We covered in the Innovator's Dilemma with Matt Christensen a vast amount of the work on the Innovator's Dilemma, but we did not cover Chapter 7. And chapter seven begins as follows. It's entitled Discovering New and Emerging Markets. Markets that do not exist cannot be analyzed. Suppliers and customers must discover them together. Not only are the market applications for disruptive technologies unknown at the time of their development, they are unknowable. The strategies and plans that managers formulate for confronting disruptive technological change, therefore, should be plans for learning and discovery rather than plans for execution. Now, you may know those to be the words of the great Clayton Christensen, but what you may not know is that a lot of that research and a lot of that mindset and a lot of that scar tissue of the work had been done by today's guest, who I am so glad to reveal is with us in person here in Dublin Stevens Green in the iconic offices. Rita McGrath is with us. Rita, you're very welcome. Oh, it's a pleasure to be here, Aidan. It's been a long time coming. It has. I, it has. It's so nice to see you in person. Absolutely. And, and let's tell our audience why you're here. You're, Rita's another mic drop moment, getting a, another <laughs> award. I'm being inducted to, into the Business Excellence Hall of Fame uh, this evening at the Shelbourne Hotel, which should be a lot of fun. So that's taking me to Dublin. And then uh, from here, um, we'll be exploring uh, events at the Drucker Forum. Brilliant. And Rita's going to be chairing a panel as well as meeting lots of old friends and colleagues. But also, you have the CK Prahlad Award in the wake at the moment as well. Yes. yes. So that was that was a, a very delightful surprise. Um, so the Strategic Management Society is our leading uh, academic society for a combination of academics, business people and practitioners uh, who are trying to you know, bring the field forward. And one of their most prestigious awards was named after C.K. Prahalad, who was in his lifetime a friend and a mentor and a person that gave great advice. So it was really, really an honor to receive that award. Brilliant. And congratulations. And, and so well deserved. I, I was telling Rita, I've gone, it's like, you know, when you know a band and then you discover you, you discover their later work and then you discover some of their earlier work. You're like, oh my God, this is amazing. So that's what's actually happened here because I've gone back on Rita's back catalogue of work right back to that 1995 article, which was really the start of it all, really, and sparked discovery-driven growth and discovery-driven planning and indeed influenced Clayton with this chapter as well. So maybe we'll, we'll focus on Clayton for the earlier part of today's episode and then we'll move to discovery-driven growth and planning. You were friends with him, collaborators with him. Uh, he, he wrote the forward for Seeing Around Corners on the table here. Maybe you'll, you'll tell us a little bit about both your relationship with him, but also how the innovator's dilemma was a spark moment as well. It, it's started to open a lot of people's minds towards the work you were doing anyway, and indeed the work Clayton was doing. Yeah, so um, Clayton wrote his 1995 article, Disruptive Technologies Catching the Wave, which he co-authored with Joe Bauer. Um, and it came out coincidentally the same year that Discovery Driven Planning, which I co-authored with Ian McMillan, came out. Um, and so the two of us knew of each other, but we never met. And then I was brought to Harvard 
by, I have, I think it was Clayton's co-founder of their consulting firm, Innosite. I think it was Scott Anthony that brought me to Harvard for some kind of um, event. And we serendipitously ran into Clay in the hallway. And of course, he knew who I was and I knew who he was, but we had not met. And so, well, if you remember Clay, he was huge, tall, tall, tall man. So I'm staring up at this guy. And uh, and he says, oh, innovator's dilemma. And as I recall, it was one of those hallways that was that it had a dropped ceiling and he was like stooped a little bit so he didn't <laughs> hit his head on the ceiling. And Scott or whoever my host was, was saying, oh, Clay, you know, come along to this thing. We're having a seminar. He said, oh, I can't. I've got to, I've got to chat to Intel. And I was like, well, that's a pretty good excuse, you know, not to go. But that was our initial in-person meeting. And then subsequently we met at conferences. Um, he was very kind to come to an Academy of Management um, uh, session I had run for other academics on theory building. And he was one of the presenters in that. And we just intersected many, many times over the years. Um, and lovely, you know, just lovely man. We never actually co-authored anything together, which when I look back on it was probably a big miss on my part. <laughs> I, I, I noticed that actually. I was surprised because your work was so intertwined. It was a Gordian knot of yeah, yeah. mindsets. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it just, it just, it, it wasn't like it deliberately didn't yeah. happen. It just didn't happen to fall into place. Uh, but we we did co-produce a lot of events together. We were on a lot of panels together. We did a lot of things together. So um, he, I miss him. It was he was a wonderful, wonderful man. Yeah, I, and I never met him. He was due onto the show many times, but due to his ill health and you know, incredible. Um, I, I've never ever. I've only heard amazing things about the man. It's amazing and the amount of work that he did as well. It's a it's an honor to have you here and, and to honor him as well. So very grateful for that. Let's let's focus on that chapter okay. because. For me, I, I asked you about co-authoring, I remember, and then you, you're kind of going, no, but we, you know, we, we worked together, we understood each other's work. And then I read chapter seven, I was like, kind of going, ah, now I, <laughs> now I understand. And we will go into discovery driven planning. We've kindly, you've kindly agreed to do more work on that in the future. Yeah. I, I think that's so incredible, that book. And then Market Busters, and people might not know about the entrepreneurial mindset, which I love as well. So there's, there's a back catalogue of albums there <laughs> that we will get to in time. And Mark Busters is a gem of a book as well, I have to say. So if anybody's looking for that back, back catalogue, go get that book as well. Let's start with um, the challenges, because really, when I was reading this, I was thinking as well about work like our, our Alex Osterwalder, mm -hmm. um, Business Model Canvas, I was thinking of Steve Blank's work, I was thinking of his student, which was Eric Reese in the Lean Startup, and I was like, kind of going, this is kind of what Rita was talking about in 1995. It was like, how can you reverse engineer almost how something's going to happen and, and give yourself in the unknowable as much knowns as possible? Maybe we'll start there with that kind of origin of the work. Yeah, so the big insight uh, that we had in the early days of developing this discovery-driven planning concept was actually sparked by a chunk of work I was doing on corporate flops. So, you know, big, huge, well-financed, splashy initiatives that ended up being complete and total disasters. And when, when we looked at them, um, what we realized was that they were all being planned as though there was date, that there were data. Right, they were all being planned as though there were data and that you could extrapolate from what you knew to developing a conventional plan, right? So here's our launch date. Here's how we're going to go to market. Here's how we're going to do all this stuff. And the big insight was when you have a very high ratio of assumptions that you have to make relative to knowledge that you have, you can't plan that way because assumptions are slippery things and human beings are terrible at processing them. And Clay and I had a lot of conversations about this, which is there's two psychological phenomena that happen. So the first thing that happens is we forget them. And this was actually some of the research that Russ Acoff did at Wharton years ago. And what he would do is he would go to companies as they were making big, important strategic decisions at the time they were making those. And all he did was document the assumptions that were on people's minds as at the time they were making the, the, the decision. And what he would do is he'd go back regularly and re-interview the same people. And what he found was that after six weeks, not a soul in the place could remember half of the assumptions on his list. Another six weeks go by, another half get forgotten. And so you end up with, with this 
just lack of memory, lack of why did we think this was such a good idea and how do we track if situations have changed? So the one big problem was you forget them. Now, the other big problem is those that don't get forgotten get turned into facts in your head without you even really consciously being aware of it. And so we declare, you know, this thing's going to launch in the third quarter of 2023. And that becomes a fact in our heads. Like, we made that up. Like, there's no data to support that. But then what happens is you spiral into this this untested assumptions taken as facts without any testing or validation of those assumptions. And so you spend a ton of money and out you go. And um, and, and we, we realized you need a different way of planning if you are to explore the unknown. Now, a couple of assumptions people get wrong about discovery-driven planning. It's not undisciplined. Like, we have it's this idea. Discipline. Oh, it's a serious, I mean, it's a friend of mine who actually worked for Master Taste, one of the Irish companies that I work with, said, oh, it's a deadly discipline. It is. <laughs> but it, can I say, because one of the things that really struck me was for, for people in innovation, and I'm talking to you guys listening as well, I've certainly done this, is it's nearly, it's more pleasant to do it without discovery-driven planning. Because it's like, you want it's like the IKEA effect in the way you, you fall in love with your idea and you want it to blossom and you want it to flourish and you don't want it to prove it wrong in the early days, but it saves you so much time and hassle. And that's the discipline. Yeah, it is. It is. It's what our friend Alberto Savoya calls Thoughtland. There are no ugly babies in Thoughtland. <laughs> all the ideas are good. We're all going to be millionaires. It's going to be amazing. This is Thoughtland's a lot more fun than yeah. reality. <laughs> yeah, that really struck me because I was like kind of going, oh, I, I know so many people will find out this work and, and save yourself the heartache because you're just kicking the can, aren't you, mm -hmm. down the road. And you'll, you'll go and you'll be busy but you may not make progress. And that's the thing you're trying to save people from. Well, yeah. And and it the the seduction of the the fast thinking, the let's make the announcement, let's get this thing out into the world, let's put it in the third quarter budget. You know, that all feels really good at the time. It's like you get your dopamine hit and yeah. on you go and you feel like you're making progress. But what what you don't realize is you're setting yourself up to fail. I've got a client right now that I'm talking to, and it's a bizarre situation because we've got science and technology, which is providing the funding. We've got corporate, which has sort of got these objectives, and then we've got a regional office that wants to do this thing. And so it's a baby of the regional office. And uh, and I, I'm just going through the plan, and I'm just asking dumb questions. And the amount of stuff they have not tested is vast. The field they're proposing to enter is very crowded. And I said to the project sponsor who's alleged in the science and technology group, I said to him, this thing is doomed. I'm sorry. You know, like it, two, three years from now, you're going to wake up and everybody's going to like have the <laughs> business planning equivalent of a hangover. And you're going to say, why did we do this? I said, you can stop all that right now. They can't stop it. It's somewhere in somebody's plan. It's somebody's said, you know, somebody I'm convinced is thinking of their next career move and they don't want this thing not working on their watch and, 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 and. So there are all these practices that happen in companies and it's not because anybody means badly, but once we've got that train going, you know, once we've got that, that, that I'm going to launch this come hell or high water in 2025 or whatever it is, it's very hard to get people to back off from that. That's something that, that Leighton talks about is, and you talk about deeply in your work is that it's not a failure by trying to make it fail. It's no, because I want to emphasize this was all done before the whole idea of fail fast, fail quickly. It was way before that whole Silicon Valley mantra. But the idea is that the failure does not mean the person's a failure. And that's one of the huge risks people don't like you've just seen now with today, with your client today, and it, like, it's still happening where people kind of go, I can't let this fail. Well, and I think they define failure in the wrong way, right? So um, let me take a, a, an example because that might get, make, make it more vivid for people. So one of the companies that I've worked with over the years is a company called Vero Bank. And they're, uh, they were founded by a recovering American Express executive called Colin Walsh. And his vision is he wants to provide financial security to income secure but cash flow challenged young people. So these are people who have jobs. So it's there's money coming in the door, but they haven't built up much wealth yet. And so it's a car repair, it's a security deposit on an apartment, it's a wedding, you know, and they're in a cash flow crunch. And so his goal is to help them build up a bit, a bit of a cushion of cash and security. 
But he's got to run it at a very low cost structure because he doesn't want to charge them high interest rates on their debt. Um, and so the whole concept is it's a branchless bank. It's all run on mobile devices, no tellers, no nothing. And the whole thing is intermediated by a chatbot named Val. And so the question came up very early in the design process. Um, well, we, you know, we can't afford the complexity of multiple interfaces. So Val's got to have a personality. What kind of personality should Val have? And the design team very quickly split into two camps. And so one camp was like, Val should be like, hey, dude, tough weekend, huh? You know, emoji, emoji, don't worry, got your back, like very casual. Right? And the other group thought this was a terrible idea. They were like, no, this is your financial security. This is your bank account. Like, this is your life savings. You need to be very serious. This needs to be Mr. Robertson. You know, here are our projections. Here's what our recommendation is. Please click here to accept. Or if you'd like more, you know, very formal. Right Now, here's the thing. In a normal corporate setting, how does this difference of opinion get resolved? Well, typically the highest paid person or the loudest or the person that has the most power makes the decision and off we all go, right? Completely free of any facts whatsoever. So in that situation, the best path forward is to do an experiment, right? So what did we do? We got two interns, right? One got to take the role of the Hey Dude guy. The other got to take the role of Mr. Robertson. We put them in closets. We had our designers sort of do some wireframes. And we lured members of our target market into the conference room with promises of free pizza. And we just let them play with the interface and imagine that this was their bank. And it turns out they hated the Hey Dude guy. They no, I mean, like, hey, dude, is okay for Venmo, like when it's beer with my buds, and I don't care if everybody knows, but my financial security, like my stake in the no, I want to be treated like a grown up. Now, the hey, dude thing, and I really want to emphasize this, that was a perfectly plausible hypothesis. Um, you know, we see many examples of very casual financial services intermediaries out there. So it wasn't a stupid hypothesis. It turned out not to be the hypothesis that was supported. So if you look at it in the, in the wrong way, the hey, dude, people failed. They were not right, right? That's not what happened. Did they really know? They offered a useful alternative hypothesis to the other one, right? Now, the other one turned out to be the one that was more correct. And, you know, in an ideal world down the road, if we had the money, we'd, we'd give people the option. You can have a casual interface. You can have a Spanish accent. You can talk in Mandarin, you know, whatever it is. We just didn't have the money to program all that complexity across our whole platform in, in, in multiple, multiple interfaces. Uh, but, you know, think about how much heartache you save. I mean, Whereas in a typical situation, somebody important would have said, this is the this is the highway, you know, we're going down it. And, you know, so f six months later, you discover they hate the hey dude guy. Now you're spending millions to retool, right? Instead of saving yourself a little bit of money, spending a little bit of money up front to learn what you need to learn. So I think the important point about failure, and I'm very skeptical about this. Oh, you know, move fast and break things, fail fast. Like it has its place, <laughs> but its place is not being sloppy or being careless or not articulating what your hypothesis is. Um, and it's also not being um, true to what you're supposed to do. So if you're in a complicated, so like if you're running an airline or something, I'm, I don't want you failing fast. Like, don't decide suddenly we're going to take off at a different altitude than what you know. I want you doing exactly what it says in the rule book, right? And so there's places for these things and places for not supporting them no two failures are the same like that and you know that's the other thing you get is like there's mistakes you make which are genuinely genuine and then there's ones well you just didn't do the planning for them and i think that's that's the discipline again that you get from this work let's let's I, i'd love to go to that chapter seven and then into yeah. discovery driven planning some of those great failures you talk about euro disney for example mm -hmm. is a great uh, case study where they just did not act local i think you know was one of the lessons i took from that but back to uh, chapter seven of The Innovator's Dilemma, Clayton talks about a couple of case studies. For example, he talks about the Kitty Hawk mm -hmm. floppy disk, and you know the case very well. Mm -hmm. uh, and then perhaps Honda as well. I'd love to share them with our audience. Oh, sure. Well, so Kitty Hawk was a Hewlett Packard innovation um, that was designed to, if, if memory serves me, capture high fidelity um, digital content on a, on a sort of small disk. Um, and like many projects, they had an idea about what the applications would be for this thing when they first started, uh, which turned out not to actually be what the market was responding to. But as they got into the market, they suddenly realized, well, this thing over here that we thought was going to be the application, they're not that interested. But this other market is like, wow, this could solve so many problems for us. Um, but what happened, and this is, I think, one of the critical lessons from that particular 
um, chapter was they started off with a certain projection for how much, you know, how big this thing could be and how fast it could grow and what it could do. And the response they got back from the corporate overlords was that's not big enough. You know, make it make it bigger, make it faster, make it hit market much earlier. And to get the funding for the project, the team agreed to go along with that. Now, here's the problem. You're setting yourself up to fail when you do that, because what happens is if you reasonably think I could get to, I don't know, but the numbers, I don't remember the numbers now, but let's say it was 50,000 units by year two. And somebody says, well, don't know, 50,000 is not big enough. You're going to give me 200,000 by year two. Well, now you're out ahead of your skates, right? And the chances of your being able to do that have just dropped. Now, let's bear in mind, the only conversation that you're having right now is an internal one. You are in charge of what those projections are, right? So one of the dilemmas of innovation um, is that you have to have a big goal in mind, but you have to be very flexible about how you're getting there. And these things always take twice as much time and cost three times as much as you think they will, right? They always do. And so in a way, Kitty Hawk, as they were discovering these new markets, which was really going to embrace what they had to offer, they were going to fall short of the corporate demand. And so the project ended up getting shut down, not because it wasn't doing the right things, but because the expectations had been set in an inappropriate way at the corporate level. And this is where discovery-driven planning and growth and reverse income statements come in, etc. But I'd love to, you mentioned Intel, you mentioned when you, you serendipitously met Clayton in the hallway, he was on the way to Intel. That was a, that's a great story in itself, maybe we'll cover a different day. But one of the things he mentions in that chapter about Intel is when they, they were just about to take off, and they had all their, he showed their income state or their, their projections, revenue projections, and then how off they were, but actually how the business took off amazingly, because they didn't think how important the IBM including their chip was. Maybe you'll take us through that because this is the kind of, if you haven't planned for it, you can't measure it. And then things look, may sometimes look like these huge successes, but they were just flukes. They were just luck. Yeah, and sometimes, I mean, and you know, as Ron Adner likes to say, you know, if you have a choice between luck and strategy, pick luck. <laughs> you just can't count on it. That's the problem. Um, I think there's a there's an optionality argument that I would make here, which is that a lot of times to set ourselves up for those lucky discoveries, what we're doing is we're seeding options, which are small investments we make today that buy us access to future opportunities. You know, they buy us the right to make future decisions. Um, and in the case of Intel, that's one of the things that they had done. They created these technologies, which had properties nobody quite recognized would be uh, super important at the time. Now, when I, um, when I think of the Intel story, it's actually a misstep by IBM that set Intel and Microsoft up for this huge success. So IBM had this um, in one of the greatest strategic blunders like of all time. So they had their franchise operations in the big, heavy mainframe equipment. And then mini computers started to become a thing. So you had that horizontalization that Clayton talks about, right? Yeah. Which is you're getting ever closer to the customer, right? So it used to be computers would have to be the size of, you know, Dublin City Hall <laughs> and, and require, you know, 50 people operating them to produce very weak by today's standards calculations. And of course, they got smaller, the things got better, and you were able to have this democratization. And then it was actually, well, it was Apple and a bunch of other hobbyists who who basically created what we would recognize as the early versions of today's personal computers. And IBM completely freaked out. And what they did, their decision that they made, was to put the IBM computer, um, but they made it out of off-the-shelf parts. Now, IBM, pri previous to that, had always done vertically integrated everything. So you made the mainframe, you made the middleware, you made the hardware, you made the software, you made the application layer, you did the whole thing, which meant you controlled the whole value chain. With the PC, they departed from that because they felt the reason they did that was they felt, well, you know, Apple's in this game. Apple could own this business. If we don't move fast to get into this world, uh, Apple could overtake us and this whole world of personal computers will belong to them and not to us. And da, 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 da. So they ended up commissioning a bunch of um, designers, but they, they used off-the-shelf parts. Now, in, as I said, a great strategic blunder, what that effectively did was commoditize the hardware and all the value moved into the chips, which was the processing, and the software, which is the intelligence, right? And that's what set the Wintel duopoly up for, what, decades of, you know, 
just kind of unassailable success. It also had the effect of marginalizing Apple, which meant for many of us that were early in the days of computer technology, we actually had to deal with inferior, unintegrated kludgy sort of stuff rather than the beautiful streamlined apple ecosystem because they just dominated the the wintel model just dominated the the markets and markets for computers at that time so it was actually ibm that created the opening for intel in those chips yeah it's incredible because you know you, you and i'm going to read your little intro for honda for our audience just to uh, set you up in a moment but when you think of those those successes you you think maybe it was the team were so, so strategic and so clever, etc. And then you find out, was this just little butterfly effect moment, this chaos theory moment? And it reminds me a lot of sport, like, how did you get picked? Well, the other guy got injured, <laughs> you know, it just, you don't know, there's so many combining parts that can set you off. And again, this is where discovery driven planning comes in because you can actually at least control the controllables. But I'll set you up for Honda because Honda is one of my favorite stories, the, how the off-road bike came to be. And this, this will just set, set you up nicely. So Clayton writes, Honda's success in attacking and dominating the North American and European motorcycle markets has been cited as a superb example of clear strategic thinking coupled with aggressive and coherent execution. According to accounts, Honda employed a deliberate manufacturing strategy based on an experience curve in which it cut prices, built volume, aggressively reduced cost, cut prices some more, reduced cost further, and built an unassailable volume-based low-cost manufacturing position in the motorcycle market. Honda then used that base to move up market and ultimately blew all established motorcycle manufacturers out of the market, except for Harley-Davidson and BMW, which barely survived. Sounds like they were magnificent innovators, magnificent strategic thinkers, etc. But perhaps you'll tell our audience the real story and then we'll start moving to some solutions. Well, the, um, the, the, the discovery, right, of the fact that there was this unmet need. And Clayton talked a lot about, and, and especially in his more recent writings, he talked a lot about uh, real growth coming from creating consumption where there was non-consumption and recognizing there was this whole population of people that had a desire for functionality that existing motorcycles didn't offer. They were too expensive. They were too heavy. They didn't handle well off-road and so forth. And that was Honda's breach into the market. And I'm not remembering right now how they discovered that, but it was certainly being out there and looking for these unmet needs. Right? Yeah, so there was a couple of um, execs that had been sent to the States to find a market and they couldn't find the market. And then they took the bikes off road at the weekends just to, as hobbyists. And then other people are going, kind of, "Hey, they're pretty cool." And that was <laughs> right? the that was like this butterfly moment. Yeah. It was like, going, "Oh, people like it for this," uh-huh. you know. And I I just found found well had they and this is Clayton's point in this is like had they understood discovery driven planning mm-hmm. and jobs to be done and all those kind of models mental models they could have actually set the market up that way. But again, this is the point of non-consumers as well. Uh, let's spend a minute just on jobs Please. to be done, because I think that's a very important concept that Clay discovered together with Tony Ulwick, who's very mm-hmm. famous for that. And the concept here is don't think of your product and service in terms of, of what it is. Think about it in terms of what's the job that your end customer and all the customers in the chain along with you are trying to get done in their lives. And so they hire you and fire you for getting jobs done in their lives. And if you think about it that way, it changes your view on who your competition is. It changes your view on what choices customers have because they've always got the choice of non-consumption, right? They've always got the choice of saying "Eh, that that thing, you know, it's not worth whatever. And I think entrepreneurs especially get this so wrong. Like they say to you, would you buy my product? And 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 you say, you don't want to offend them, right? So you say, of course, I'll buy your product. And what they don't ask you is, you know, would you give up the money for your child's tuition in order to be able to afford my product? That they don't ask you. Or they'll go say things like, um, like one of my favorite stories about this is the story of the McDonald's McLean hamburger. No. Oh, yeah. So So these market researchers went out and they asked, they asked, you know, consumers. Well, how would you feel about having a lean, healthy alternative in a McDonald's, you know, rather than the greasy burger we all know and love? And of course, we all responded, oh, we would love that. We are not the sort of people who would go into a fast food establishment and desire greasy, bad for you food. No, no, no. Please make us healthy, wonderful food. So McDonald's spent millions making this slightly less bad for you burger. (laughs) 
<laughs> it also tasted a lot worse than the regular <laughs> burger. And as uh, the head of marketing for McDonald's sort of woefully said to me after this thing had been introduced and was a complete disaster, she said, I think the only people that ever paid for these actually worked for McDonald's marketing yeah. department. Because it turns out when we go into a McDonald's, we know exactly what we are looking for. And it's not healthy, you know, whatever. Um, and I think so you, you can't over rely on what people say to you. You know, you have to really do some reality testing and watch them in the field and get, get feedback about how they're actually using the thing. I'd love to now start to move to some solutions, but use some of your examples. So I mentioned your Disney Polar Vision as well, and FedEx's, uh, FedEx's failure as well. And, and this is not to make the failures seem bad, but it's just to kind of go, well, what could they have done? And I thought I'd pull a quote from Discovery Driven Planning, where you said, Discovery DDP, recognizes that planning for a new venture involves envisioning the unknown. I absolutely love that quote. I pulled that as it's like, that's one of my quotes from Rita that I'm going to keep. But you say conventional planning operates on the premise that managers can extrapolate future results from a predictable platform of past experience. In platform based planning, a venture's deviations from plan are a bad thing. For those working in new ventures, innovation and startups, DDP is therefore a must. So discovery driven planning. And I'd love you to give us a bit of a background and a history to uh, discovery driven planning. But what that brought to mind for for me was I, I went to business school. And in business school, they don't teach you any of this. They teach you to be able to manage a business that's established or that at least the environment's stable. And then you have people in marketing, and they're taught to do that as well. And they reject ideas. And then you have people in sales, and they reject ideas. So the whole organization immune system is rejecting the innovator or the change maker because change is bad. And deviation, as I mentioned, in that quote is bad. And this causes this where we are today, you in a world that's in unbelievable flux, everybody's built mentally for stability. And the operate the market doesn't work that way. Right. So a um, couple of things that I think are worth taking on board, though. Uh, most new ideas will fail. Most mutations in nature are fatal. Most new ideas in business aren't good ideas. I mean, they have pieces of good ideas in them, but most of the time they're not going to work out, at least as as first conceived, as fully formed. So I think you have to go in recognizing you're dealing with a long odds proposition to begin with. So the norm, and again, this is one of those un untested assumptions. We go in assuming in Thoughtland, right? The norm is that things are going to work out, that this is going to be a great idea, that everybody will see the beauty of it. When people that are experienced at doing this recognize there may be the seeds of something really valuable in this mix, but it's highly unlikely you're going to hit on it right away, you know, right in the beginning. Um, usually it's a, it's a cumulative process of trial and error that you sort of work your way to whatever the final thing is. So let's start with the, um, I think, the historical platform upon which current studies of, of innovation, of which I would say DDP is one of the pillar concepts. Uh, and if you go all the way back to Sean Peter, right, looking at how do capitalist systems make progress. And he talked about waves of creative destruction in which one set of new things will sweep away what came before. Um, and that is the innovation process. And his argument was that is how we get greater productivity. That is how we move past the old and so forth. So all the way back to Jean-Peter in the 40s and 30s. Um, the modern, I think, studies of corporate venturing, I would trace back to the work of Bergelman, who did a ton of work with Intel. Um, people like um, Sales, you know, uh, Madik and Zerger, who looked at things like fascinating stuff, like most really successful products. And they were looking at things like the Edsel, right? Like a disaster, right? But the Edsel preceded the Mustang, which was one of Ford's biggest successes. And they posited this theory that they called the new product learning cycle, which is, uh, you know, somebody tries something, it doesn't work out, but out of the seeds of that, that failure come the next thing because now we've finally done the learning we should have been doing to begin with. So we have this massive failure and then something good comes out of it. So all that work kind of was brewing around um, Macmillan, my co-author, and Zenas Block wrote a great book called Corporate Venturing, uh, which won all kinds of awards. Um, and that's going back I think late 80s, early 90s. And so there were pieces of these ideas of how do we learn from things that don't go the way we expected? How do we plan, but plan to key, um, Zenas Block called it milestones. How do we um, think about this, these waves of successes and failures? And then um, Macmillan and I were thinking about, um, and I remember it very clearly, we were thinking about, well, what would you do differently if you 
If you knew, you didn't know, right? If you knew you couldn't count on your assumptions being true, well, how would you do it differently? We said, well, what you'd do is you'd plan, but you'd plan to the limit of what you did know. And that was the whole idea of planning to key checkpoints. And then we said, well, okay, so what do you do to prepare for key checkpoints? And so the the, the whole theory in a nutshell is if you can define success, right? Because we find a lot of ventures don't define success. The the overwhelming, even to this day, the overwhelming way people think of what defines success is they say, oh, the market for, I'll make it up, but, you know, machine-operated cocktail equipment is going to be 2 billion units by the year 2025, and all we need is 5% of that market. Okay. Demand done. <laughs> right? And then we work out the rest of our plan looking at cost. That's all we look at. We don't look at the revenue side. So define success before you start. Then do some benchmarking. So I would define success. I say, I want to make a million dollars by such and such a year. Well, okay, if that's your profit, what's your return on sales likely to be? And if you know that, then you can cal back calculate into what your revenues have to be. And if you know what your unit of business is, you can create what we call a reverse income statement, which says, let's start off with profit. Let's work into required revenues. Let's figure out how many units we need to ship or how many hours we need to bill or how much you know, whatever. And then you ask yourself, well, is that even being realistic? Like, could we just kill this thing off right now? Because even if we're successful, it couldn't possibly be big enough or it couldn't possibly be rich enough or whatever. So you you do some market benchmarking. Then as you're building out your plan, you operationally define what would have to be true. So that's what I call your deliverable specification. And as you're doing that, you're making assumptions. And what we want you to do in a discovery-driven plan is just document them somewhere. Like, let's all be clear. These are nothing more than assumptions. And then you plan, but you plan to key checkpoints. Now, what that does for you is you say, okay, I want to do a bunch of customer interviews. And, and let's say I've got a $500 million opportunity. I'm going to allocate 250000 to figuring out if it's a real thing or not. So that's my option value. That's what I'm willing to lose to find out if this opportunity is real or not. And of that $250,000, i am going to allocate maybe 10000 to doing initial customer interviews. So let's say the interviews reveal this is actually a pretty stupid idea and nobody wants it. Okay, I've spent my ten grand. I take the other two hundred and forty thousand, and that goes back into my innovation pot. I say, thank God, I didn't spend you know five million to go after this thing, um, and and that's a success to me. That's a, a big success. So you've paid your tuition in effect. And it's interesting to me that in in real life, um, we find option thinking to be very comfortable. You know, we send our children to university. We don't sit there with a slide rule doing discounted cash flow analyses of the network they're going to meet and the people that they're going to, and the beers they're going to have in the pub. But we don't do that. And yet, and yet somehow when we make decisions in business, we apply these completely inappropriate metrics to what we're trying to accomplish. So discovery-driven planning is really a way of saying, yes, it's uncertain. That's okay. There are ways of tackling it which you can control and which... I mean, at any moment, you can, if you if you do the discipline, you can know exactly what your exposure is at any given moment. So even if you're wrong, you don't have to be wrong expensively. It's fantastic. And again, now you see why it's a discipline and it's not Thoughtland. And Thoughtland is so idyllic. <laughs> Everything. <laughs> and uh, yeah, and that's where you can sit in your beanbags is in Thoughtland. This is out with the Excel sheet and it's not so pleasant. Or the felt tip pens is, I've seen you do like reverse income yeah. statements and put people through their paces. I, maybe we'll share a couple of um, the, the, the disasters and then uh, a great case study you give of a real in reinvention story, just like Fujifilm, which was cow, cow. In, in Japan, which is a great, great story. Uh, surfecting the a soap company, essentially looking to uh, the floppy disk industry. Great, great case study. But Euro Disney is, a, is one. And, you know, many of us, I, I certainly was there and I benefited from their flop <laughs> because it was cheap <laughs> to get into Euro Disney back in the 90s. And uh, I enjoyed it. But like so many of the things you mentioned in the case study, you did it in a day, you did it in half a day because there wasn't that many rides and they really didn't act local, they act global. And I think one of the things that exposes as well is the idea that your past successes can make you fail. So they succeeded massively in Japan and the US, but then tried to apply that mindset to Paris flop. Yeah, so I think it's useful to, to just pick up on that because Walt Disney, the man, was the very first 
really to invent what we would think of as the modern theme park experience. He put up Disneyland in um, in, in California, and everybody at the time said, Walt, you know, this is crazy. Who's going to pay good money to ride around in, you know, electric vehicles looking at animatronic alligators, you know? <laughs> I mean, who's going to want to do that? So puts it up, big success, right? And the feeds of the success were the characters, the content, the IP was what attracted people to the park. And then while they were there, they paid for hotels, they paid for meals, they paid for the rides, they paid for the merchandise, you know, and all that. And so there was a really powerful economic model behind it, which actually produced corporate synergy. Like, people talk about synergy all the time. This is a real example of synergy. And so they went looking further afield, and the next place they landed was Orlando, Florida. And people, again, said, well, you know, this was the last project Walt Disney personally over oversaw in his life. And people said to him, Walt, you're crazy, right? There's nothing in Orlando, Florida. There's not an international airport. There's sand and alligators, and that's about it. Um, but he persisted and uh, and put up the theme park. And then they did go to Japan. And again, you know, the weather in Japan is not like Florida or California. It's horrible half the year. It's cold and rainy, you know, during that season, and it's hot and sticky in the summer. And the park itself, like, you can actually see it when you take the bus in from the airport to the city. Um, it's, so it's quite close to the city, which is a departure. It used to be like these things were a destination, but Japanese park, big success. So they figured, what have we got to learn? Like, we know what we're doing. We've had this bad pattern of success. And what they had not quite appreciated, uh, one of the elements that they hadn't quite appreciated was both Japanese and American consumers are snacking nations. Like, we eat and drink and coffee and whatever all day long, right, throughout our day. Europeans aren't like that. <laughs> Europeans, by and large, not all of them, but many, many European countries, people would like to sit down and have lunch with wine at lunchtime. And so they hadn't built the park for that use case. They'd built the park for passing on through instead of, you know, sitting down on the Imagine sitting down on the Champs-Élysées, right, with a cup of coffee. And anybody who's ever done that knows you are going to pay a fortune for that cup of coffee. But you're not paying for the coffee. You're paying rent on the chair on the Champs-Élysées. That's the model. It's a completely different model. And Disney did not test that before they they went. Um, and so, yeah, they they weren't able to raise enough money. That it, they opened it in the teeth of the Great Recession of, I want to say, 1991. Um, and so they couldn't build out as a number of rides. Therefore, you could do the whole thing in half a day. And they also had a really big problem with people would only come on the weekend. They wouldn't come during the week. Where, whereas Disney in both California and Florida are destinations. And so all these different miscalculations. Now, and I, Disney's not a stupid company, but they kind of got blinded by their own success and didn't realize they still had to test those assumptions. And let's give one more example before we go to Cow and how Cow essentially used DDP because, mm -hmm. you know, this whole idea of test the assumptions, reverse income statement, race as well, maybe we'll share with the audience. But uh, the other one was uh, maybe we'll share Polovision because this was another one like you're kind of going, what? And I suppose we need to give context for the time in which uh, Polaroid invented this product. So, um, which which in the age of TikTok looks pretty prescient, doesn't it? I mean, come on, this was not yeah. like we didn't have a need for this thing. Yeah, so the people that invented Polaroid, which was itself an improbable innovation, it was a chemistry lab in a box, basically, that you could buy and take home with you. I mean, a stunning mm -hmm. bit of innovation. Um, and they had this idea that, well, people would really get a kick out of, out of videos that moved, right, and did things. But the problem was the whole ecosystem just wasn't right back in the day. And so they they launched these things, but there was no really convenient way to play them back. There was no really convenient way to record them. There was no convenient way to share them. And if you think about something like a TikTok video, what gives it its value is not it itself that you're looking at it, but the, you know you can spread it far and wide into the world. And so they were right in the sense of that's the job to be done, record fast, snappy videos, but the, they didn't finish the job, which was, and then share them, <laughs> right? So it turned out not to work at all. Then that tees us up nicely for cow because cow, like similar type of concept is like what capabilities we have. I think that's a, another important thing to emphasize for audiences. Organizations build up capabilities. And if they do what you talk about in the end of competitive advantage and they start to look beyond their industry that in which they work to the arena in which they could compete, it changes the mindset because they start to go, okay, just like Fujifilm moved from film to makeup. Cow moved from surfactants to something entirely differently. Yeah, so in the early days of the computer, uh, personal computer industry, a very big market that 
was just projected to grow exponentially. It was the market for removable storage. Now, today that sounds completely absurd, but you have to remember back in the day, you didn't have removable storage. You had built-in storage. It was built into the machine. The, the advent of the floppy disk was this revolution where you could actually put content on this device, right? This Not even a device. You could put content on this disk and replay it. You know, similar to the way you'd play a vinyl record or something. And this was astonishing to people. And so it was a very big, big potential uh, industry. And cow, which was in a lot of mature businesses in there, um, they made cosmetics, they made soap, they made stuff like that. And what they realized was that the fine-grained treatment of surfaces that floppy disks required to be accurate and capture the uh, the images in the digital imprint, that that actually was virtually identical to what you had to do to make really good facial makeup or really good, you know, anything that involved the surface, right? And Cow was very good at that. And so they went into the floppy disk business. But what they didn't do was go into the floppy disk business. They first said, well, we've got a problem, which is our brand is associated with cosmetics and surfactants and soap. Will anybody buy a cow-branded floppy disk? Now, they could have done any number of things. They could have launched a pilot. They could have built a, a test plant. They could have – they didn't go – they didn't even do that. They bought a couple of thousand regular disks from a regular disk manufacturer, spent the money to rebrand them as cow disks, and then tried to sell them in stationary stores near college campuses and near where people would buy stationary. And what they learned was that was fine. The, the category was new enough that the cow name – could play there because there was no established player. There was no sort of understanding of, oh, well, this should be IBM or it should be HP or it should. there was no dominant brand. So once they tested that assumption, then they said, okay, now we can build a test, a pilot market. So the next thing was we'll spend a little bit more money. We'll, we'll set up a pilot line, right? And they bought lines, by the way, from existing manufacturers. So it wasn't like they had to invent the whole things themselves. And so they bought the line from a commodity manufacturer, but then they used their technology to be able to do even better floppy disks with, you know, Less expensive, but better storage, much more accurate than the existing manufacturers could do. And they branded those cow and they got out. And so that was like the second big wave. And then once that proved out, then then they went into full scale production. But notice they, they were testing these assumptions at lowest possible cost along the way. Beautiful. OK, so I, I think at this stage, we'll bring it together, if you would, for our audience. So there's a model that you talk about called race. Mm -hmm. uh, maybe we'll share race. But then also... If, if you're an innovator, and this has happened to me, I have to say, in, an, in a corporate organization, you end up hating the CFO because the CFO is an idea killer. But actually, that's the CFO's job. You know, when, and you, when you start to have empathy and you kind of go, OK, he or she is just doing their job. I'm doing my job. Actually, when I point the finger, there's three pointing back at me. I, I was at fault back then because I didn't have these models to be able to present it. When they ask me, what kind of revenue is this going to make? I, I, I make up a number just to get the project over the line. And that's actually what a lot of us do. And I'd love you to share your advice for somebody who's working in a corporate monster, coming up with an idea. Maybe it's maybe it's a, the best idea in the world. But how then can they, they use DDP to get the idea to even to base, second base or third base? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, I think the best conversation to have with a CFO is start them off with um, walk them through the idea of options, which is, you know, okay, so let's start with base principles. You know your core business is on the path to commoditization. I mean, you know that. In any capitalist economy, if you've got something that's making a margin, others are going to be prompted to copy. Now, you may have an entry barrier. You may have a patent in the case of, say, pharmaceuticals. You may have a high cost of entry, although that's coming down everywhere. Uh, so unless you have an entry barrier, you know, whatever you've already invented that's a sustainable, reliable business model is going to come under pressure. What that means from a CEO point of view is your return on investment is inexorably going to get smaller. Right. Um, maybe not immediately. And maybe if you've got network effects, you can avoid some of the worst of that. Maybe if you're a monopoly, you can avoid some of the worst of that. But by and large, your biggest return opportunities are not going to be in your core business. So let's have that conversation first. All right. Well, then where will they be? Well, by definition, you've got to go someplace where the competition isn't. You've got to go someplace where there are discoveries about customer needs that have yet to be made. And that implies you're going to have to go into places with more uncertainty in them. Okay. So that's sort of Conversation number two. Conversation number three is, well, what if I could say I'm going to buy you access to a potential $20 million opportunity, let's just say, or 20 million euro opportunity, and I'm going to ask you for $20,000 to do the initial 
set of screens about whether this is even a thing or not. Uh, so you're, I'm, I'm asking you to stake 20000 The reward is possibly $20 million. Do you buy that? And so it's this relationship between upside and downside that you want to get them to, to buy off on. And if you can have that conversation, it becomes so much easier because what you're promising is the industry. What they're terrified about of, with the innovator is that you're going to use – their permission to to go hog wild, spend money like crazy, right? Yeah. Go do things at midnight in dark corners and that they're not going to have the discipline around yeah. anything to show for it. But what you're promising them is, look, I, I will not spend more than 20,000 euro, let's say. Uh, I promise you that, right? So the most you're exposed to is 20,000 euro. And, you know, if you're a decent CFO, you can always find that somewhere in the rounding numbers, right? <laughs> yeah. So that's the biggest exposure you're going to have. And then I promise I will come to you after having spent that and we will have an honest conversation about whether it's worth taking the next step. And so you make them your partners, if, yeah. you, if you can, if you can. And if you're transparent about you know, here's what we've learned, right? And maybe what we've learned, I mean, it's not as fun a conversation, but maybe what we've learned is we spent the 20000 and this isn't going to be the idea that takes us forward. But, you know, we're going to go back to the drawing board. We're going to take that team. We're going to find the next set of good ideas. We're going to work those. And if you have a portfolio that you're building, right, you may take 10 tries if each of the 10 costs you 100 bucks, but the 10th one returns you know 5000 times that that who wouldn't take that bet so it's it's introducing them to a disciplined logic for getting to the new things one last thing i'd add and to your point about we get don't get taught this stuff if you think about the life cycle of a competitive advantage right the the front part is where innovation happens m&a discovery r&d all that stuff right there is a whole methodology and discipline around it, but we're not taught that. Then we have the exploit part. That's the part we're all pretty comfortable with, right? Optimize, management by exception, you know, steady state, repeat, repeat, repeat. But then once competition has caught up with you or technologies have changed or something has happened to fundamentally shift what's going on, you now have the transformation challenge. Um, and that means I have to reposition my company. So if I'm cow, I'm repositioning my company from soap. Um, you know, if I'm other kinds of organizations, I, I'm, I'm shifting the center of gravity to something that's going to be its future. So I'll tell you a little quick story about that. So one of my clients is a company called UPM, which literally stands for United Paper Mills. It's a Finnish-based paper manufacturers. So what do they do? They cut down trees. They, they you know, cause the bark and the wood and the stuff to be disintegrated. And then they roll it out as paper. I mean, it's a very, it's an environmentally very nasty process. But, you know, it's a very well regarded industry. But if you looked at all the projections for what's happening to paper, particularly the kind of paper that magazines are printed on or newspapers, um, it's nothing but red ink. I mean, it's just it's a declining business and everybody knows it. right? Um, and so their um, CEO, um, Pesonen was his name, is his name, um, sort of said, well, let's go back to what are we good at? So kind of back to the cow kind of analysis. Well, in order to take tree bark and turn it into the Financial Times, um, I need to be really good at enzyme processing. And so what he did was he literally split the company into what he called the biofior segments, which was going to be enzymes, and, you know, biofuels and bioprocesses of all kinds. And then the mature businesses, which were the paper mills and the producing two by fours and, you know, making paper and stuff. And those were going to be called the mature businesses. So we had biofior and mature. And I thought this was a terrible idea. I was like you know, what are you talking about? I mean, like these guys in the mature businesses, they're going to feel like horrible. You know, they've got no futures, no growth, no possibility. This is going to be terrible. And the people in BioFior are going to lord it over everybody because they're the future and you've been very consciously deliberate about that. And he looks at me with this wicked Finnish grin and the Finns are very understated <laughs> people, right? He says, well, why don't, why don't you go interview some of those people and see, see if your hypothesis is correct? Well, I could not have been more wrong. I went and talked to the guys running the paper mills and they were like, oh yeah, yeah, the BioFior people, it's going to take them years before they finally figure out what their business is. And while they're doing that, we are Rambo. Like we are protecting the mothership. We are the, we are the, the, you know, the, the moat that's going to keep this boat afloat, right? Or that's a bad analogy. But anyway, we are the yeah. power that's going to keep this company going. And so what um, he had done, what the CEO had done is he had painted a picture that showed them the whole life cycle. And he basically said, okay, BioFior right now is here. By the time they get here, when we actually need to start having them grow up and create scale and do things with high quality at reasonable cost, and you know, by the time we're beginning to become a mature business, um, we need you. We need your skills. 
We need your ability. We need your discipline. Like those blank sheet of paper people, I'm not handing them my global supply chain. No, that is not happening. Um, <laughs> and he was incredibly crisp about what stage these different businesses were at and what role his people had to play. So today, UPM is in a huge player in biodiesels all over the world. They've got a $2 billion biodiesel plant that they just set up in Latin America. They're producing biodiesel all over Europe. And of course, with what's going on now with fuel, I mean, they are like, Perfect. Right in the sweet spot, right? Um, and so it, it illustrates a couple of points. First is this idea of what capabilities do you have that give you a right to play? Second is this, you tell me what industry they're in. They were in paper. Now they're in fuel. I mean, huh? I mean, they're not in oil and gas drilling, but they're in a very legitimate competitor to renewable energy, right? Um, and then the third thing is you have to be really conscious about the effect on the people. You know, people have to be able to see themselves in whatever this future is that you're creating. Done brings to mind that you don't change the business model alone, you need to change the mental model. And then the communication aspect, that, that's the thing that struck me most about his, his case was his communication to both. He was, you know, we talk about the ambidextrous organization, but this is the bilingual leader speaking in the language of those guys and the language of those guys. I mentioned race, maybe we'll finish with race as well, because it's a model that is a takeaway for audience maybe to bring with them. and. Uh, only a little teaser of what is in DDP in this book, Discovery Driven Planning. I highly recommend that book. And Rita, I'd love for you to come back again and do a deeper piece on that and, and market busters and entrepreneurial mindset. Uh, you'll be sick of me. <laughs> <laughs> not at all, not at all. That gives me a chance to come back to Ireland, right? Yeah. Um, so race stands for a set of questions that you ask when you hit a checkpoint. So uh, let me dig into that a little bit more. Um, so each checkpoint is a learning moment. So typical checkpoints, you know, customer interviews, uh, doing a prototype and getting some responses, uh, going to a trade show and seeing if you can sign up any customers, you know, things that will teach you something. So it's, it's a set of moments in time that are learning moments. And what we recommend is that you plan to each checkpoint with a lot of discipline. So you know what assumptions you want to test. You've already identified that. You know what you're going to spend. You've already thought about that. Um, and then the, to close the loop, you do what we call a checkpoint review. And a checkpoint review is basically like an after action review. It said, what did we think we would learn. <laughs> what did we actually learn? Um, what does that imply for what we need to do next? And then ask ourselves, do we need to do something different? So do we need to redirect? You know, maybe that market over there wasn't really that interested, but this market over here is really interested. Um, like the, like the Kitty Hawk case, right? Um, do we need to accelerate? Maybe something's happening in the market that says, Hey, you should be moving faster, right? Uh, uh, do we need to just continue? Are we on a good track? And okay, we've tested a bunch of assumptions and we're ready to take the next step. Or do we need to exit? Like, and people don't like to ask that question, but, you know, sometimes you just learn enough that like this, this is not the best use of our time or attention. This is not the best use of our people. And maybe this one we exit. And then in a company that does innovation well, people don't mind that. They they actually come to their own conclusions about it. And then they're excited for the next project. I mean, nobody wants to be wasting their time, right? On a dud um, at the end of the day. So if you can get people really realizing that you've structured it enough so that they understand this is not going to be as good as we thought and get them to stop it early and go to the next thing, that becomes a much more a constructive cycle. Beautiful. I think that's a, a lovely way to end and tee people up. We will be back again in the new year, that's for sure. And uh, I really want to do a deep dive on your work because I, I, it's fa fascinating. Goes back, as I said, the back a back catalog goes right back, and uh, it just sent me down so many rabbit holes of other content and other people you cite and you footnote, etc. And it's just brilliant work. It's it's always a pleasure to learn from you, Absolutely. Rita. For people who want to find you, because you you're still very active throughout Europe as well. You're here in Europe at the moment. Um, Reid has worked with so many European companies, including Nokia, for example, uh, right back to the early days of, of Nokia, back to the mobile phone days as well. And your company, Valise, is really taking off as well. Maybe we'll tell people where to find you in those respects. Yeah. So my own work um, is under RitaMcGrath.com. And so that's where you'll find the writing. I do a weekly newsletter and I do a monthly wrap-up newsletter. So if you're interested in what I'm writing about. Um, and I write about things like, like why why did we have the Jetsons in 1962 and we're still hanging out waiting for autonomous cars, right? You know, why... <laughs> 
Um, and so things that I just think are really interesting and that aren't talked about in a, a sensible way. And I call that thought sparks. And so, you know, you can expect to see me opining on things like autonomous vehicles and Facebook's business model. What do we think the future is going to hold for some of these metaverse ideas that aren't really crystallizing and, and then that sort of thing. So so that's the Rita McGrath brand and that's there. Now, Valise was founded to be a tools company. And among the things we offer are we actually have a, an app that helps you implement discovery-driven planning in your company. So it covers that area between I've got a great idea and I'm ready to launch it to market, that gray area in the middle where I'm I'm testing assumptions and I'm learning and I'm putting budget numbers next to assumptions. And so the software is called Spark Hub and we're just, uh, that's just entered into beta with a bunch of initial customers who are very excited about that. And then we have diagnostics. So one of the diagnostics is a team effectiveness diagnostic. And that actually comes from my dissertation. And what my dissertation was all about was how do existing firms create new capabilities? That's where this all started, right? And what I found was a very predictable pattern. The first thing we have to do is get a sense of what's going on around here, which is discovery-driven planning, basically. Then we have to get a team working on it and excited about it. Some of what they're working on is going to create new capability, new competence, which I define as the organizational, organizational equivalent of a skill. So when you first start learning to type, you're like jabbing at the keyboard, you know, with your hands, and then eventually you get to the stage where you can use all your fingers, and then eventually you get to the stage where you can type without even having to look at your, your hands. Um, so it's that, that equivalent in an organization. Some of those are distinctive, and some of those form the basis for a competitive advantage, which I define as a combination of three things. Does the market like it and appreciate it and will pay for it? Does your firm like it and appreciate it and will support it? We think those things go together. They don't. <laughs> there are all kinds of great little businesses that no parent company wants and all kinds of things the parent company is gung-ho for that mar the market's going, why are you doing this? And then uh, next to all those is, do you have competitive insulation? So the team effectiveness piece, which is available now as a diagnostic with a debrief, uh, is a piece of that model. And we're going to be building out that whole model going forward. But anyway, Valise is all about tools and uh, actually implementing these things in your organization. So check check out Belize, check out RitaMcGrath.com. Uh, Belize with a Z, right? Belize with a Z, yes. Belize with a Z, yeah. okay. Rita, it's, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining us in, in our beautiful studio here in the iconic office on the Greenway on St. Stephen's Green in Dublin. It's been an absolute pleasure spending time with you. Rita McGrath, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Aidan. What an honor, what a privilege to meet in person Rita McGrath and to host her here in the iconic offices, the Greenway on Dublin St. Stephen's Green. Next week, we have another stunning episode in this series to recognize and honor the work, life and theories of Clayton Christensen. I want to thank our sponsor, Next Estate, specialists for English speaking investors for buying, selling and managing property in the Berlin market in Germany. You can find Next Estate at next-estate.com and next-estate.de.